Hey, good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. Hope you're having a good week, whatever day of the week you are consuming this. We are recording it on Tuesday morning. That means it's December 1st. That means there's only one more month left in this awful year. Only one more month of 2020. And as I keep thinking about 2021 and thinking, well, it can't be worse, right? I really hope that's true. I don't know that to be true, but I really hope that's true. One more month to go. Quarantine's starting to pop up. Yellow zones, orange zones, COVID numbers. Be safe out there. Stay home. Wear a mask. Do whatever you have to do. But keep listening to the podcast. We appreciate that. Good weekend in sports. Lots to talk about. College basketball is here. Going to talk about SU. Going to talk about some of the upsets that went on this past weekend as well. Of course, we start with the NFL every week. We start with the Buffalo Bills. And, you know, Sunday was one of those games that looked like a lot of the other games the Bills have won this year. They were in control of the game. It was a game that they should have won and did win. But they once again let it get interesting. And this is a young team now that needs to learn the next step, finish your opponent. They've learned a lot of steps along the way. They've they've learned how to win, which is a good thing. It's the most important thing for a young team. But now learn to finish your opponent. They have not mastered that yet. The turnovers in the second half, three turnovers in seven plays, you just simply can't do that. Devin Singletary fumbles, that's going to happen, can't happen, but it's going to happen. Josh Allen mishandling a snap, that can almost never happen. And then Josh throwing a bad ball up late in the game. It, it just is it's one of those things that you look at in the growth of your quarterback that he needs to eliminate from his game. You know, the Bills, they still have a one-game lead over the Dolphins. The Dolphins get a win over the Still winless Jets, and that's going to be a storyline through the last five games of the season. Do the Jets finish perfect? Or do they win a game and possibly get leapfrogged by Jacksonville in the Trevor Lawrence sweepstakes? Nothing would be more New York Jets than that happening. Last week of the season, Jets get a big win, avoid going 0-16. Jacksonville loses their 15th straight, and Jacksonville, via tiebreaker, ends up ahead of the Jets, and they take Trevor Lawrence. That would be just so New York Jetsian, which is crazy. But the Bills have five games left, and this week they travel out to the West Coast, sort of. They don't go to San Francisco as originally planned. They do play the 49ers. That game will be played in Arizona. 49ers dealing with the county that they live in and they play in, not allowing any pro college high school sports to take place. So they've had to move their practice facilities, their game. They are just moving to Arizona. So the Bills moving there. It's not an advantage one way or another or a disadvantage one way or another. Home field means next to nothing with no fans and no emotion in the stands anymore. You see more road teams going in, getting wins. And then it's the Steelers at home who very well may still be perfect by the time the Bills play them. Then two road games at Denver, at New England, both very winnable games, assuming Denver will have a quarterback who can play at that point. But it's still a winnable game. And then the final game of the year at Miami. And I think if 
I'm a Bills fan. The one thing I want to avoid is the Miami game in week 17. I want to avoid that game being meaningful. That's the goal. Finish the season. The Bills have the tiebreaker right now over Miami because they won the first game. So if they finish a game, two games up, there's nothing that can go wrong. If Miami is going to win out, they're going to have to beat Cincinnati, which they can. Kansas City, which I don't think they can. New England, then they're on the road for the last two, and they play the Raiders before Buffalo. So it's it's going to be interesting to see how this unfolds. But, again, let's go back to Sunday. This is a Chargers team that's simply talented but not good, if that makes sense. They were without a couple key defensive players, and because of that, the defensive line – had only one superstar on it, not Melvin Ingram. They only had Joey Bosa. And yet the Bills almost got wrecked by Joey Bosa. He is that good. Bosa's stat line is ridiculous. He had eight tackles, three sacks, six tackles for loss in the game, and he recovered a fumble. He dominated this football game on the defensive side of the ball for the Chargers. Unfortunately for the Chargers and their fans, Anthony Lynn put on a display of clock mismanagement, the likes of which we may never see again. After completing a Hail Mary late in the game to try to get it to a one-score game, the clock management was just atrocious. You run the ball, don't get it. Clock continues to run out of timeouts, decide to run the field goal unit on, run the field goal unit back on, try a quarterback sneak that doesn't get there, and the clock expires. Just awful. And there were timeouts earlier in the game that were taken that were indecisive. Kick the field goal, go for the first down, uh, let's take a timeout and think about it. No. No, at that point, take the five-yard penalty, kick the field goal, and move on. That five yards means nothing. That timeout, as we saw at the end, means a lot. Anthony Lynn... He's a really good guy. And I'm going to talk about the coaches who I think are going to be fired or could be fired. Anthony Lynn sealed his fate, in my opinion, Sunday. The Chargers have Justin Herbert. And it, I look at Herbert and Josh Allen, and they remind me very much of each other. They're both big, young, strong, athletic, powerful arms. Herbert, I think, is a little more accurate than Josh was when he came into the league. Put up another 300-yard game. He threw it 52 times. And Again, here's something going forward to think about with the Bills. The Bills' defense has struggled trying to take away both the run and the pass. If you're a team who makes yourself one-dimensional, you've done the Bills a favor. The Bills' defense has gotten better. It's, it's improved. Getting Matt Milano back, and I don't know if he'll come back this week, though he's eligible, will certainly help. But one guy I want to single out is A.J. Klein because I've been very hard on A.J. Klein. A.J. Klein isn't fast enough to be a really good linebacker in the NFL right now. But on Sunday, A.J. Klein had a hell of a game. He had a sack and a half. He had 14 tackles. He played great. Another guy who played really well and another guy I've been critical of, so I want to mention it, was Ed Oliver. Ed Oliver was very disruptive on that defensive line. He did a lot of good things. Now, everyone will remember the pass, roughing the passer penalty, followed by the offsides penalty. 
yeah, that was a bad two-play sequence for Ed Oliver. But if you watch that game and you watch the push that he got, maybe, maybe the light's gone up. Here we are in year two, and maybe Ed Oliver is starting to figure things out. And if that's the case, this Bills defense will get that much better. Offensively, this was a different game, and it was a game where the Bills, in their bye week, they talked about it. We got to fix the running game. And it appears as though they did. They had a, a situation up front where now Cody Ford is out for the season. And as much as I hope Cody Ford becomes the player he was drafted to be, he's not at this point. Not a good guard. He's not a good tackle. He's just not a good offensive lineman in the NFL yet. That Cody Ford becomes something eventually, but it's not going to be this year. So that means John Feliciano now moves over to guard, which I suggested last week. Mitch Morse is back at center. Brian Winters has not been spectacular, but he's a solid veteran. So you've got that offensive group in the middle to build on your running game. And I thought they did. Devin Singletary ran the ball about as well as I've seen him run it all year. 11 carries, 82 yards. He had the fumble, which obviously is something that we talked about last year in the playoffs because Singletary fumbled three times in one game last year. Let's hope it's just the one and it goes away. Zach Moss had some really nice runs. He had nine carries, 59 yards. When your team runs the football for for 172 yards, you're probably going to be in pretty good shape, and the Bills were. Josh wasn't asked to do a whole lot in this game. He was 18 to 24, 157 yards. It's funny to me that whenever the Bills run the ball a lot, and Josh Allen doesn't throw the ball a lot, it's met with criticism, and people get a little frustrated by it. Look, this team still plays in Buffalo, New York. And in the playoffs, you might have wind side blowing sideways, snow, whatever the case. Running games travel. They work in – they're like the post office. Wind, sleet, snow, or rain, they're going to deliver. Passing the ball sometimes doesn't work in bad weather. It's, it's a lot more difficult to do so. So I think it's extremely important that Bills, the Bills can win games like this, where they're forced to play in a way that they're not comfortable playing. And I, I really think Brian Dable is not comfortable running the ball 25 to 30 times a game. I think he's much more comfortable throwing the ball 35 times a game. So when you look at it that way, to be able to do what you're not comfortable doing, doing it well enough to win the game, I think that's a good thing. And, again, Allen made two mistakes with the fumbled snap and the bad interception that a winning quarterback can't make. Other than that, he managed a very good game. He was injured. That knee, he was wearing a brace by the end of the knee, end of the game. Didn't seem to bother him much, but something certainly to keep an eye on going forward. It's one thing to get hurt in the game and finish the game. Because your adrenaline is flowing and all the, the good things that you're feeling during the game. But you know after the game, that knee swelled up. You know after the game, that knee is going to be sore and stiff. That means this week's game against San Francisco is certainly a concern to 
just keep an eye on with Josh Allen. Hopefully it's nothing. Hopefully he handles it the same way he handled the shoulder injury earlier in the year, played through it. He is extremely important to this team, obviously. So that's something to keep an eye on. I want to point out one other player before I move off of the Bills game, and that's Gabriel Davis. This is a kid who is a rookie in camp. Everyone raved about him. He was the talk at camp. And oftentimes the talk at camp becomes an afterthought during the season. But here he is at this point of the year contributing with, with John Brown out. Gabriel Davis had three catches, 79 yards. He caught the touchdown pass from Cole Beasley, a great play call by Brian Dable. But 22 catches for 354 yards, four touchdowns in his rookie year. You think about this, 30 catches for 500 yards at the end of the year, something around those numbers, maybe five or six TDs. Gabriel Davis has had a really strong rookie season. It's been really impressive. And with John Brown going on IR, missing a couple weeks now, I think it's really important that this kid continue to play the way he has and for Josh Allen and Brian Dable to have the confidence in him that they seemingly have, the ability to call plays for him that you know he's going to do his job. So good win for the Bills. We could sit here all day and, and pick apart the win, but 8-3 and three is 8-3. and three. Let's be honest. If I had told you at the beginning of the year, Bills were going to be going to play the 49ers on Monday night, and be eight and three at the time, you'd have taken. I don't think anybody out there would have been upset with that. And the fact now, if you're not somebody who enjoys one o'clock games, the next four games are games that are on primetime. This game is a Monday night game for the Bills and the 49ers. Then there's a Sunday night game with the Steelers. The game in Denver is a Saturday game and a Monday night game in New England. So four chances for the Bills to shine in prime time, time, something they have not done, flashback to either the Kansas City or Tennessee games. It has not been a good showing in prime time. The Bills need to finish strong. So that's the Bills part of the podcast. The NFL Week 12 recap goes a lot like this. The, The game I was most interested in, and I've been very hard on Tom Brady and the Buccaneers was the Kansas City Tampa game. And, you know, Kansas City to me, and I, I, I apologies to you Steeler fans who aren't going to like hearing this. The Chiefs are the best team in the league. I know the Steelers are 8 0, and I know they're a team that many people think could go undefeated. I personally don't, but there's a chance they could. They've gone this far without a loss. But, the Chiefs have such a unique and great offense. Their defense is far better than people expect it to be. And they just won't go along. Sunday was another one of those games where early on, Tyree Kill, his first half, he's over 200 yards. It was crazy. It was almost over 200 yards in the first quarter. He finished the game, 13 catches, 269 yards, three touchdowns. Mahomes... 462 yards he threw for. And he missed McCall Hardman for what would have been about an 88-yard 
touchdown. He made a bad throw. Hardman's running by himself in the middle of the field. He's the second fastest guy on the field, second only to Tyree Kill. Nobody's going to catch him. He's going to walk into the end zone. He had another 90 yards to Mahomes. He's at 550. And it, it just was it within the confines of the offense. It wasn't like they were behind and throwing. This is just the offense. And watching this team, watching what Mahomes is able to do, it's really fun. Now, Tampa, I, I love their defensive line. They got a couple guys that you, you may have forgotten about, but you start watching and you see Jason Pierre-Paul still rushing the passer, still getting after it. And, you know, after that fireworks incident, this is a guy who's done a great job of rebuilding his career. And Dominican Sue is tough in the middle of that line. They've got speed at the linebacker position. But unfortunately to me, what's holding them back is the quarterback and the offensive play calling. I got to throw that in too. Ronald Jones is a guy I've talked about for a couple of weeks now. If Tampa is going to go anywhere, they need to be a run first team. And I know when you've got Chris Godwin and Antonio Brown and Mike Evans, Bronk, it's tough to look at that and Tom Brady pulling the trigger and say, we're going to be run first. But I really think they're a much better team when they get the ball to Ronald Jones 15 times a game. Now, Leonard Fournette's been a huge disappointment. If you follow football Twitter, you may have seen how poor his vision is when he's running the football and choosing holes. He's just not the guy he looked to be at LSU. And it's really amazing some of the holes this guy has missed this year. Yet every third series, he gets the ball. Jones had a touchdown run on a pass the other day. It was a short pass that he turned into a 37-yard TD that was spectacular. This guy is big. He's fast. He runs hard. He's not a great pass blocker by any stretch. He's not a great receiver by any stretch. But run the football with him and take some of the heat off of Brady because Brady's just simply not the guy he was five years ago. And at 43 years old, who would expect him to be? Had a real nice throw to Godwin. Godwin had a great catch on it. But the deep ball has been something he struggled with. 30, 345 yards looks great, but took 41 attempts, two interceptions. He's just holding this team back at this point. Tampa's going nowhere until they change the way they think offensively. They're still good enough, and Brady's still good enough to win games and win meaningful games, but not if you require him to throw the ball deep and to require him to throw the ball 40 times a game. The offensive line's not strong enough to protect him that way. The offensive game plan shouldn't be designed to have your 40-year-old quarterback being hit several times. It's just not smart football. Bruce Arians has got to make an adjustment there. The Raiders last week got a lot of love from me. I said they're going to win a playoff game. And then they do this. They go down to Atlanta and get blown out 43-6. to What the hell was that? How does that even happen? This is a team that I'm watching, and I know Jacobs got hurt. He only got seven carries, but what are you doing? It's Atlanta. And, you know, Atlanta, I I don't know how bad of a coach Dan Quinn was, but this is a different football team since he's been fired. 
they've only lost one game, and it's a game they could have won. So keep an eye on the Falcons maybe next year. They hire the right guy. This may be a, a good team going forward. I think the stat of the game, though, I saw this. I was like, oh, my boy. Nate Peterman got some action for the Raiders. That's how bad the game was. Nate Peterman played. Most importantly, Nate Peterman was three for five for 25 yards and wait for it, no interceptions. Nate Peterman gets in a game and doesn't throw an interception. It is podcast worthy. Nate, good to see you back in the league, man. How is Nate Peterman still in the league? Come on, Gruden, you're better than that. The Giants are the best of the worst. Well, maybe not the worst, but the worst division in football easily is the NFC East. It is deplorable. Thanksgiving Day, the Redskins routed the awful Cowboys. You look at the Giants, and they're getting better. Joe Judge seems to be a really good young coach who's grooming his team. The defense is playing better. Unfortunately, in beating the Bengals, Daniel Jones was injured. Daniel Jones needs to be healthy for this Giants team to win games. They just simply are not going to win games with Colt McCoy. Yeah, Colt McCoy is still in the league. Who knew? But it's just one of those things looking at this team. If Daniel Jones is out for any time period of time, then we might be looking at Philadelphia again, which Philadelphia last night was awful. I don't know what's happened to Carson Wentz. Seattle gets a nice W on the road. Carson Wentz is not a good quarterback. And and I don't know when that happened or how it happened. It's so strange to see a guy that a couple of years ago, I was convinced he's going to be in Philly for 10 years. He's going to be the quarterback of the future for the Eagles. This is a guy who I just, he has it all. Strong arm, ability to run. And all of a sudden, he's as inaccurate as any quarterback I've ever seen. And looks confused. He holds the ball too long. Yeah, his offensive line's been dinged. And the receivers are a problem. But there's no way you can just excuse the fact that Carson Wentz has become a bad quarterback. And Philly drafted Jalen Hurts. At the end of this year, if they're eliminated, you got to give the kid a couple games, I think, just to see what you've got. You drafted him. See what you got. Because I don't think you've got the answer in Carson Wentz, and I can't believe I'm saying that. Running backs don't generally get a whole lot of love for MVP voting. But if Derrick Henry's not the MVP of his team and probably the most valuable player in the league, what quarterback means more to his team than Derrick Henry? Maybe Patrick Mahomes is is there anyone else you could even throw in that conversation? To me, Derrick Henry and Patrick Mahomes are the two-man MVP race. Henry, another big day, 278 yards, three touchdowns. They really routed the Colts, 45-26. And the Colts' defense is really good. That This Titans team talked about it. Defense and running in the playoffs, they're going to be a problem. And the Bills already went down there and got lambasted. I don't think the Bills can handle the Titans running game. And I think that's going to be a problem if those two meet. 
sometimes you have good eight and three teams and you're optimistic. Sometimes you have eight and three teams. You go, huh, I don't know what they are. That's the Cleveland Browns to me. Baker Mayfield and, you know, if anyone, if Josh Allen missed the throw that Baker Mayfield missed on Sunday, you would have seen it in memes all over Twitter. Baker has not played well this year. He hasn't played terrible for the most part, but the Browns are eight and three and not because of Baker Mayfield because of the running game and their defense. Another team with potential to be a problem in the postseason. The difference between Tennessee and Cleveland, in my opinion, is that Baker Mayfield, I think, could end up costing the Browns an opportunity where Ryan Tannehill at this point is likely to win a game for Tennessee should need be. Nick Chubb has, has been really good. He got hurt against the Cowboys earlier this year. He's only played in seven games. First game of the year, he gets 10 carries. So doesn't get 100 yards in that one. The Cowboys game he got hurt in. He had six carries for 43 yards at the point he got injured. The other five games he's played, he's been over 100 yards. This kid's a beast. And when you throw the fact that they've got Kareem Hunt behind him and complimenting him, Cleveland is going to be a good offensive team, a ground-based, a running-based offensive team now going forward for a couple of years. If they continue to build that defense, it's going to be a really, really good Cleveland team. Again, not sold on Baker. Don't like what I've seen, but this is the real deal. The Vikings and Panthers had a fun game. Joey Sile misses a 59-yard field goal, I think it was, at the at the horn to lose the game. Vikings win by one. But the thing I wanted to point out was Justin Jefferson in the rookie year he's had. Obviously, Bills fans, you all know, Stephon Diggs goes to the Bills. The Bills offense turns completely around and becomes a very good offense. Diggs is having a great, great year. Nobody in from Buffalo is complaining about the price that they paid for Stefan Diggs, nor should they. However, it's two sides to every story. The price that they paid, or at least part of the price that they paid, was the number one draft pick. That number one draft pick turned into Justin Jefferson. And you look at what he's done. Seven catches, 70 yards, two touchdowns on Sunday for the season. 918 yards, 52 catches, six touchdowns. This kid's been really, really good. This is a true trade where both sides win. The Bills get digs, not looking back. The Vikings get Jefferson, and they are looking forward. And if the Vikings didn't lose to the Cowboys after that atrocious start, I think they'd be right back in it where they get an opportunity to sneak in the playoffs. New England's not dead. And until sometimes you see a team eliminated, you won't believe they're dead. And that's my approach with the Patriots. They beat the Cardinals 20 to 17. You look at the box score and you try to figure out what they did well and you don't have an answer. There's no advantage. There's no stat. There's no nothing that says this is why they won. But there's a reason they won. And it's Bill Belichick against young quarterbacks. Kyler Murray is a very good young quarterback, but the word young is still in there. And because of that, when you play against the Patriots, you're going against Bill Belichick and it can't happen. Well, 
this is one of those games that will forever be talked about. The Saints and the Broncos games. And it won't be talked about because it was an instant classic. It wasn't a thing of beauty. It wasn't a great game. It wasn't even a good game. 31-3 Saints win. But the fact that Denver played the game without a quarterback is what will be talked about. Kendall Hilton, Kendall Hinton, was a practice squad wide receiver on Saturday. It's called up to the 53 man on Saturday afternoon. And on Sunday, he's starting at quarterback because he played some quarterback at Wake Forest before he moved to wide receiver. The NFL is not about competitive balance or fairness, unless you're the Baltimore Ravens. That's we'll get to that. But they don't care. They are going to get this game in They this season. in. They don't want a week 18. They've got their schedule, and they're forcing it to play out. The way things are going with COVID in this country right now, the numbers are exploding. It's getting harder and harder to play these games. And there's more put on each team to make sure that their players are compliant. And if their players aren't compliant, it's the team's problem, not the league's problem. And the league simply does not care. They do not care if you don't have a quarterback. Now, my question is, if Denver was a playoff team, would this have been the same situation? And the answer to that is probably not, because you look at the Ravens, they were supposed to play the Steelers on Thursday. Didn't happen. They were going to play it Sunday. Didn't happen. Going to play it Monday or Tuesday. Now it's scheduled for tomorrow, Wednesday, at 3.40 in the afternoon. Because NBC is committed to the lighting of the Christmas tree in Rockefeller Center. So the NFL, which never took a backseat to anybody in 2020, is taking a backseat to a Charlie Brown Christmas tree in Rockefeller Center that nobody can go to watch because of the COVID situation. Okay, I get it. But it's just inconsistent. And I, You know, it's strange. When you listen to the experts or the people on the in, Adam Schefter has become such a shill for the league that he has become annoyed with his colleagues for questioning the difference between Baltimore and Pittsburgh and Denver and New Orleans. And he has come out and defended the league on this. Now, look, I get it. When the league decided they were going to play this year, They said it week one. This year is not about competitive balance. They don't care. Somebody's going to get screwed, and it's just the fact of the matter. That's the Denver Broncos. They got screwed. And you know what? Tough shit. Move on. Be better. It's just amazing that they let this happen, the Broncos, that is. And it's amazing the NFL came down on them the way they did. There was an assistant coach who was a former quarterback who knew the playbook inside now? The Broncos petitioned to allow the league to let him be signed to play quarterback. League said no. This was a game that didn't have a quarterback in it because if you look on the other side of the coin, without Drew Brees, the Saints, they're not using a quarterback either. They're using a tight end. It's strange to watch what has become of football in 2020. But then again, I could have just said it's strange in 2020. Last game I wanted to talk about were the 49ers and Rams. 49ers get a win. And, you know, this is the team that the Bills played this week. 
Debo Samuel has been really good. He had 11 catches, 133 yards. Nick Mullins has been okay. The defense, even with the loss of Nick Bosa, they have had so many injuries on this 49ers team, yet here they are beating a good Rams team and staying competitive, and they're going to give the Bills all they can handle this Monday night. So it's it's just a strange year, and, you know, keep keep the train moving. That's the NFL's message to the league. Just keep going forward. Whatever happens, happens. It's going to be an asterisk year in every way, and, and the NFL is going to be no different. It's going to be an asterisk, but that's okay. They're getting the games in. We're watching. We're talking about it. It's more than we could have hoped for, I guess, unless you're a Broncos fan, in which case, eh. Ravens, don't forget, Ravens Steelers, 340 tomorrow afternoon, set the DVR if you're at work. The Lions finally cleaned house so soon. Matt Patricia and the Lions' awful performance on Thanksgiving Day was the final straw. Bob Quinn also fired the general manager of this team. Not often do you see this, but when a guy gets fired in the NFL, usually people take up for them a little bit. You know, this guy, good guy, didn't work. You're not seeing that. Former players tweeting with joy over these two getting fired. Patricia came in, and I I, I rooted for Matt Patricia because as somebody who grew up in Herkimer, New York, I'm a central New York guy. Patricia went to VVS, a, a school near Utica, and went to RPI. So because he's a somewhat local guy in the 315, I rooted for him. But when you're a Belichickian disciple, you don't come in with Belichick's rings. You come in with your own resume. And not being able to connect with your players is a huge thing. I read a stat that only two Belichick coaching tree people have winning records. One of them was Bill O'Brien, who I don't think anybody is going to go down and say Bill O'Brien did a great job. The other is Mike Vrabel in Tennessee. Vrabel's a real guy and I think a real good coach. His players love him. He's the anti-Belichick disciple. All the rest go in like Belichick, and they've all had losing records. It's truly amazing to me that people look at guys who are on staffs, with great head coaches, and think he could be the next great mind. Eric Bieniemy gets a lot of love about a head coach. People want Eric Bieniemy to be a head coach, and when he didn't get one last year, there was a lot of discussion about why not Eric Bieniemy. Oh, I see. You got a black coordinator who's done a great job, and he's not good enough. Well, let's slow down because Eric Bieniemy is working under Andy Reid, and I will, I will always question this part. How much of it is Andy Reid? How much of it is Eric Bieniemy? Who's calling the plays? Who's influencing the play callers? I don't doubt that Eric Bieniemy is a great offensive mind and could be a great head coach. It's another part, too. Eric Bieniemy's past isn't squeaky clean. 
there was some things that went on when he was at Colorado that would certainly come up if he becomes a head coach. And if you hire your head coach, you don't want things to come up. You want things to just go, no, seamless. Win the press conference. Let's move forward. Hire Eric Bieniemy. you're going to answer questions about Eric Bieniemy. It's going to play against him. The media seems to have forgotten all that, but they'll be reminded of it the minute somebody hires them as a head coach. The Jags have fired Dave Caldwell, their general manager. Think about this. This is a results-oriented business, pure and simple. You lose, you're out. You win, you're in. Dave Caldwell was hired in 2013. By my count, that's seven seasons ago. In those seven years, Dave Caldwell has had a losing record. And not only a losing record, has lost at least 10 games as the general manager of the Jaguars. And every year but one, 2017. For now, St. Doug, Doug Marone, former Bills coach, is hanging out in Jacksonville. Yeah, he'll be out too. Black Monday is always the Monday after the season. This year, we've already had a few coaches been, that have been shown the door. Patricia, Dan Quinn, and Bill O'Brien. They will be joined on Black Monday, no doubt, by Doug Marone. Adam Gates has got to go, and I think Ad- Anthony Lynn will go. I want to throw some other names out there because I think there's possibility that more join them. There's usually between six and eight, and that would give us our six for the year. But Zach Taylor's won three games now in two years in Cincinnati. A lot of people in Cincinnati talking about dysfunction and things not going well there. Zach Taylor could be on his way out. Doug Peterson, if he doesn't turn this around, I know he won the Super Bowl a couple years ago, but there's a chance he may go. I don't think Mike McCarthy gets fired because I don't think Jerry Jones likes paying coaches not to work. But keep an eye on McCarthy's situation in Dallas. His decision-making on Thanksgiving Day against the Redskins, I'm sorry, the Washington football team, was just abysmal. Matt Nagy in Chicago, I just don't see it. Offensive guru, and this is a team that hasn't had an offense since he's gotten there. And one other name to keep an eye on, just because of the way things have unfolded, though I think they like him, Denver and Vic Fangio. Things haven't gone well there. This COVID situation shows somewhat of a lack of discipline within the, the team. If things go south the rest of this year, that may be a possibility as well. And there's always somebody we don't expect. So that's the Black Monday update. couple general manager positions and a couple guys from Buffalo may be up for those jobs. One guy, Dan Morgan, is a name to keep an eye on. He certainly could be in the mix for a few of those GM positions. Move on to college hoops. Syracuse underway. They're 1-0. and all. That's all that matters. They're 1-0. and all. I didn't think they'd be good on Friday against Bryant. I didn't think being paused for 12 days, practicing one and helping and, and playing the next day was probably a recipe for success. But the one-point win and the lucky one-point win, Bryant had two good looks at the buzzer that would have won it for them. This was bad. This was an ugly situation. And to Brian's credit, they came in with a game plan. They were going to shoot the three. And they did. In the first half, they shot 50%. Nine of 18. 
they had led for most of the game. SU, they struggled offensively. Joe Girard was, was abysmal in this game offensively. Two for 14 from the floor, two of nine from three. Buddy Beheim led the team with 21 points. It was only four of 11 from three. Quincy Guerrier had a nice day, 15 points, 13 boards. Marek Dolajai, though, was the star. Marek, 20 points, 10 assists to go along with his five rebounds. And maybe most importantly, doing a solid job in the middle with Brahma Sidibe going out early. Sidibe hurt his knee. He's having surgery today, as a matter of fact. will be out at least a month on that means that the Orange will go with Marek in the middle. Alan Griffin, the newcomer, who had 17 and 13 and looked every bit as advertised against Bryant, will be on one wing with Gary A on the other. And frankly, those are the Orange's five best players. But Sidibe gives them length in, in, in the middle of that zone and a rebounding presence that they may need going forward. But maybe the most interesting part of this game was the back and forth between the coaches. And it wasn't really a back and forth. At halftime, Jim Beheim made comments that we shouldn't have played this game. We should have canceled this game because we didn't practice, because things didn't go as scripted. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have played. Well, Jared Grasso, the Bryant coach, took exception to that. Here's Grasso after the game responding to Beheim's comments. We gave them five opportunities to cancel the game. They wanted to play it. We asked to move the date five times because we felt the same way they were coming up quarantine. They asked to play it. They wanted to play us. We should have beat them at their place. If that's going to be their excuse, so be it. But now, now I got angry because we had this conversation with them a dozen times about moving the date back. They decided not to move it. I know I'm not supposed to say that. He's a Hall of Fame coach. I'm a nobody. But the reality is we tried to change the date. We gave them the opportunity to change the date. They decided not to. They decided to play because of that. Is that the reason we should have beat them? Uh, if, if they want to use that as an excuse, they can. But we came up here and we should have beat Syracuse at Syracuse. I like that. I really do. Now, Beheim after the game. At halftime, he said we shouldn't have played this game. Recipe for disaster. After the game, Beheim's comments were, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have scheduled this game. It wasn't smart by me. He took ownership of the decision to play the game. Grasso, though, he's not kissing anybody's ring, and I like it. You went in there, you should have won the game and played really well, and you've got a good competitive team that are going to play well in their conference. I like that he didn't kiss the ring. That's if you're if you're a player and that's your coach after the game, you gotta like that. The guy's standing up for you and and defending yourself and go right back at the coach who's the Hall of Famer. I, I do really like that. This Syracuse team is gonna be very similar to last year. And some some of you may hate that, some of you may like it. You've got three guys who can really shoot it, and, and I do include Gerard Spike his performance on Friday in that group. Buddy, of course, is, is a great shooter. Alan Griffin is a volume shooter who can really knock it down. You've got a, a, an athlete in Gurrier who has got an NBA body and a motor that 
will keep him active. If he can stay out of foul trouble, he's going to be effective. Marek in the middle is a Swiss Army knife. He can do a little bit of everything. It's going to be a fun team to watch grow. And I think Katari Richmond is a name to keep an eye on. I mentioned it last week when we talked about SU. Just what I saw of him, this kid's got a little something. He, he's got a comfort level. And it's an early, you know, first game as a freshman, you might see jitters. He was doing some things that looked very comfortable, very confident on Friday. We want to see more of Kadari Richmond. They play next on Thursday against my alma mater, Niagara University. So go Perps. Greg Paulus, one of the best young coaches in the country, brings the Purple Eagles into the Dome. Again, no people there. And it's, it's funny, when I first saw this game, and it just got announced last week that it was going to be played, my first thought was, Oh, man, I should go check that game out. And then my second thought was, yeah, you can't, jackass. Nobody can go check this game out. 2020. Yeah, well, another 2020 moment is the fact that with no exhibition games and games popping up, Mike Bray, Notre Dame coach, went on Twitter looking for a game. Hey, looking for games. DM me if you if you want. That's how we're scheduling D1 basketball games in 2020. But San Francisco beat number four, Virginia, which San Francisco, when's the last time they were good? Crazy. Virginia Tech beat number three, Villanova. Nova's really good. I know that's weird that I'm saying they got beat. They're really good. Richmond beat Kentucky. This is a year that, especially early on, you're going to have some crazy upsets because teams are going to go on pause, forfeit games, miss games, not be able to play games, and then move forward with games. And the teams aren't simply going to be ready to play. And it's strange because now essentially college basketball is going to be in a bubble for a little while. Most students across the nation are not on campus so the only ones on campus are going to be the basketball players. So they're kind of in a bubble. And so I think the situation with COVID in college basketball may actually settle down a little bit going forward. The fact that there isn't a whole lot of people on campus generally, the, the players can kind of keep to themselves. So I think they're going to have a lot of success, at least until the kids – come back to school and when that happens we'll see where we are as a nation with the vaccine they may go into the spring semester and remote learning may be the answer if that's the case college basketball i think has a big advantage over a lot of other sports because it's almost a self bubble just because of logistics i grew up as an old man grew up in the 70s and the 80s and i remember when boxing was huge Frazier and Ali, the heavyweight division was so good with Ken Norton. You had Jerry Quarry getting beaten up by everybody. Guys like Ernie Shavers, Michael Young, George Foreman. It was just an amazing time for the heavyweight division. And then in the 80s, you had the middleweights. You had Hagler and Hearns and Leonard. Boxing was great. Into the 90s and late 80s with Tyson. And it was just a lot of fun. And when pay-per-view would happen, there were 
a lot of people would get together at somebody's house and have a party and watch these fights. Who's the best fighter right now? Now, some people will say Floyd Mayweather, and that scumbag, woman-beating piece of crap that he is, is old and done. He hasn't fought anybody legit in years. Remember, the last big fight was Conor McGregor. It wasn't a fight. It was an exhibition. So, no, it's not Floyd Mayweather. I don't know who the best fighter is. I don't know who the heavyweight champion of the world is. I think it's Tyson Fury. But my point is, boxing is something that's gone away. But yet on Saturday night, there was a joke of a card that people bought for $50 and everyone was talking about. One of the early fights of the night, a YouTube guy, and I don't know who Jake Paul is other than he's a YouTube guy, knocked out Nate Robinson, the former basketball player. And when I say knocked out, I mean knocked the bleep out. Dude was done. Dude was out, out. And now everyone wants to fight Jake Paul. Vander Kane, the hockey player, Jose Canseco, who Jake Paul used to hang out with Jose Canseco's daughter. So, of course, Jake Paul responded to Jose Canseco by saying, sure, I love smashing Canseco's. Nice. Yeah. So Jose Canseco wants it. Kyle Farnsworth wants to fight him. Apparently, if you put an exhibition match up, it means more than a real boxing match. And then it was Tyson fighting Roy Jones Jr. Look, Tyson still looks great. I don't think at 53 years old he could compete for the heavyweight title again, but I'm sure there's a lot of heavyweights that he'd fight and win, and if he fought, he'd sell tickets and make money. I won't be surprised if Tyson does a little George Foreman thing here going forward. Roy Jones Jr. didn't look like he was in great shape, but then again, it didn't matter. He got a paycheck. Boxing used to be big. Now it's just a joke. College football in 2020? I don't know what to say about college football. You've got a lot of teams that are good teams that aren't playing well, and they're going to be looking for new coaches. Michigan, Texas, Penn State, all may be looking at new coaches. Ohio State was paused this week, but the focus to me is on who's going to be the hot candidate. Well, Iowa State is having a very good year. Matt Campbell has done a great job there. I want you to listen to Soundbite a couple of years ago. Not because it's relevant to today, it's relevant to every day. Here's Matt Campbell, and I think this guy gets a big-time job after this year. got to tell you is this you're teaching the world that in this sport college football toughness discipline and detail still matter that's your platform your platform is it is it is team above self that's the platform that you're using and nobody wants to buy into that in our culture today okay our culture says it's all about me our culture says screw process I want instant gratification. But here's a fact, and young guys, listen to me. If you fall in love with the process, if you fall in love with the process, then eventually, Ogie, eventually the process will love you back. But see, here's what's crazy about that. You don't know when it's going to love you back. Okay? All you have to do is you got to be prepared for your opportunity when it's ready to love you back. 
Now think about that because that's powerful. There's some young guys in here that are still trying to climb the ladder. Okay? What you guys that have grinded it out, have stuck it out, have believed it out, you fell in love with the process. And the process is now loving you back. going to be an interesting offseason. Harbaugh, they lose to Penn State. Penn State gets their first win of the year. Those two coaches, I'll be shocked if they're back, both back next year. I think one of them may be back, but I can't see both being back. Notre Dame wins against North Carolina down in North Carolina. This Notre Dame team is two wins away from a perfect season going into the ACC championship game. They have to beat Syracuse, which are only favored by 32. I'm a little surprised by that. And then they have to beat Wake Forest to get to the ACC championship game undefeated. If they do that, I think they're in the playoff. I really do. Well, it's a weird year in many ways. And who knows? Maybe the Heisman Trophy ends up somewhere nobody would have thought. How about the Heisman Trophy going to UB running back Jarrett Patterson? Take a look at what Jarrett Patterson did against Kent State on Saturday. A first and goal from the three. Tight end in motion. Patterson up the gut, and he is in. Touchdown Bulls on their second play from scrimmage. Has certainly earned that distinction. First and ten, they were three wide. Patterson breaks free, and he's off. Touchdown, Jarrett Patterson. Right at Zach LeFave, shifts over. Patterson to the left side, through the hole, and he's off. Patterson going for his third touchdown today. All in the first quarter. In State 49, Wilson in motion. Here's Patterson, escapes a tackle, splits a hole. Patterson's off once again. Jared Patterson, how about four touchdowns here in the opening half? From the one, Van Treese to Patterson, he dives. He's in. Touchdown, Jared Patterson, number five in the first half alone. Patterson again up the middle. He's in. Touchdown, Jared Patterson. And he's matched his own school record. That's number six. Mullen it shifts. Patterson takes the handoff, and he's in. Jared Patterson, how about lucky number seven? It's a new Buffalo record. He breaks another one of his own marks. Up and a snap. Patterson again on his feet, past midfield, and off to the races. Jared Patterson, how about touchdown number eight? And maybe the toughest one of all for 65 yards. Eight touchdowns on the day for Jared Patterson. 36 carries, 409 yards. The eight touchdowns are an FBS record. The 409 yards, the second most in a game in the history of college football. For the season now, uh, four games in, 107 carries, 920 yards. That's an 8.6 yards per carry average in 16 touchdowns. In the last two weeks, 710 yards and 12 touchdowns. I'm going to say that again. 
Last two games for Jared Patterson, 710 yards and 12 touchdowns. UB has become the best football program in New York State. They are a better football team than Syracuse. It's easy to say that right now. Lance Leipold has done a great job there. The offensive line is fantastic as well. And I think whenever you see a great running back, it's easy to forget about the offensive line. But Patterson's backup, Kevin Marks, on Saturday, 16 carries for 97 yards and two touchdowns. For the year, he's averaging 6.2 yards per carry. That offensive line, led by a kid from Victor, Mike Nowitzki at center, is doing a great job. It's just fun to me to watch a school like UB be discussed everywhere. LeBron James, Barry Sanders tweeted at Jared Patterson. It's cool, man. You go to UB, you're playing football at UB. Next thing you know, you're a national story. And frankly, in this year where other than Kyle Trask down in Florida, I don't think there's a really good Heisman candidate who's Trevor Lawrence has missed games. He didn't play for a month as good as he is. I don't think he is the guy. Justin Fields had his worst game in his biggest game. And now they're missing games because of COVID. I don't think he's the guy. Kyle Trask is having a really nice year. He may be the one guy you can look at and go, he's a legit Heisman candidate. But I think if Jarrett Patterson finishes strong here, and UB continues to win. They're now 4-0. I know they're in the MAC, but why not? At least invite them to the ceremony or let them finish in the top five. But you got to think about it. I know it's become a quarterback's award. Jared Patterson is a legit Heisman Trophy candidate. Well, that's it for this week. Appreciate y'all listening. Thanks so much. Enjoy. Don't forget. Set the DVR, 3.40 Wednesday afternoon, Steelers-Ravens, finally. It's going to be on NBC. Have a great week, everybody.